This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by David Lipsky. You may remember some of his previous books, Absolutely American, and although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. But today we're here to talk about his newest title, The Parrot and the Igloo, Climate and the Science of Denial. David, thank you so much for being with us. Jenna, it's great to, it's great to be here. And so thank you to you and also to Barnes & Noble for hosting. It's hard to say that I liked this book coming off right off the bat of having to really sit back and examine my thoughts on climate change and on the science that I thought I knew. And some of it I realized I didn't know as well as I thought. I can only say infuriating is a word that I kept thinking as I was going through some of these pieces and really trying to parse how I felt about where we're at now and the steps that we've all taken to bring ourselves here. But I can say that I understand things in a different way than I understood them before. So I thank you for that, for bringing us sort of this new piece of knowledge. What brought you to this topic? How did you stumble upon? Well, it was really interesting for our viewers. Um, sometimes people have like a cool conversation before the um the Zoom recorder before you sign the waiver saying it's being recorded. And there was something that you said right when we got on the line today that went a huge amount to me, which is it was a climate book that you enjoyed reading. I thought it was really important that readers, people who go to Barnes & Noble, people who, if they're trying to think of how they want to spend a Saturday or a Sunday, they're like, I'll go to Barnes & Noble and see what's new there, or I'll go to the site and see what books are being recommended. It didn't seem like there was a book that they could read for pleasure the way they would read Lori Moore for pleasure or the way they would read Joan Didion for pleasure. And so that, I think, was making us weirdly less effective at dealing with this. So I wanted to write that book. I wanted to write a book that, that my friends would want to read about climate. Yeah, it's something that I think a lot of people avoid immersing themselves in because it is daunting and it is in many ways terrifying and it is hard to put yourself in the mindset to want to delve more in, but it doesn't go away because we don't talk about it and it doesn't stop happening because we don't know about it. So it really is one of those things that even if it's uncomfortable, there is still levity and humor and things that we can, you know, cope with through reading, which is, I think, a way so many of us cope with things. Yeah. I just wanted like, um, I thought that it should be funny. It's an incredibly funny story. I mean, not I did all I had to do was try to keep up with it, running behind it with my notebook and with the pen sometimes dropping out of my hands, both in clumsiness and also in surprise. Like it's an incredibly funny story and it's a thrilling story. And once I saw that, and I'll tell you how I, you know, I'll tell you when I first noticed what kind of story it was. Like it's a giant godfather level. Lord of the Rings level story, Harry Potter level story that we've all lived without knowing it. And I thought that would be great to tell people about too. Like it struck me as a hugely interesting and cool and surprising story. Is that how it seemed to you, Jenna? Yeah, it was so, uh, so much of what we know about this topic is, feels very data driven. It's facts and numbers and timeframes and graphs that I don't understand and can't <laughs> figure out. But this is about people and it's about a narrative which was so much more interesting to follow and so much 
It allowed for so much more depth in my understanding because it's about people, not numbers. Uh, Jenna, the uh, the self that was up till two or three in the morning going over drafts and drafts, that self is smiling somewhere in the very recent past. There's a million great villains in the book, right? That was one of the really funny things about doing the research part. And there's one great semi-villain. He sort of invented American advertising. He's a guy named Bruce Barton. And he said a great thing about advertising and also about newspapers. He said, this is about 1925, that one sort of Rupert Murdoch type guy has a rule which is there will be no stories on the front page of his newspaper, no photos that don't involve faces. And what he said is, because as people, we are most interested in ourselves. And next to that, we are interested in other people. And so I thought, okay, this is a bad guy who's done harm to our culture culture and country. But his advice about how to tell the story about climate is excellent. So I love what you just said. That was was why I wrote the book, and that's the way I wrote the book. It was such a more... in-depth experience to go through and understand the entire narrative of starting from these inventors in the first section. We talk about Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla, who are names that everyone knows, but you don't necessarily tie to this story. How did you start with those? Did you write this in order? Did you know you were going to start with these men and their sort of creative process? I did. That's a, Jenna, that's a great question. And um, what you saw past my face was, how, uh, how accurately do I answer this? Okay, so semi, semi-accurate with, uh, with regard to time, because this book took a while to do, but this, um, this conversation between us could be fizzy and extremely fast. So I, was, I wanted to write actually about how our world exists. Like I was fascinated with a number of things that we take for granted in the, you know, in the basic city. And I began by researching electricity. So I knew that I wanted to write something about Edison and Tesla. And then I began to see where their inventions had ended up. And I thought, holy God, the whole story, the story begins really when Edison decides to make us electric. And what a thrilling thing to tell. Of course, like he didn't know, right? So there's that great part. In the, there's the, I mean, I think it's fun. Jenna, it's pretty cool, right? The stuff about yes. <laughs> like when, you, when you've been with a book for a while, you get pretty honest about it. Like, if you ask about the wrong chapter, it'll be like stepping on a bomb in the game Stratego. I'll be <laughs> like, yeah, I did, I did my best there, right? After you've gone through all the cool stuff about Edison and Tesla, after you've lived their stories with them, and it's great because as people, they made things better, but they left this slight problem. And there's a, there's a celebration for the 50th anniversary of electricity and the light. And everybody is toasting. And weirdly, Edison is anxious. It's a great scene to have gotten to write. Edison doesn't want to go in. And he, he starts crying outside the door. The president is in there and every CEO and his wife gets him a glass of warm milk and he goes inside. And then there are all these testimonials and Einstein is speaking uh, by a shortwave radio from Berlin. And he says, the great creators of Kechnitz, that's the word for inventors, among whom you are the most successful, have placed human beings in an entirely new, in an entirely new situation to which we have not at all accommodated ourselves yet. And it's like the one bummer note in the evening, but it was totally right. And that's what the that's what the next section of the book ends up being about. So yes, one, once I knew what the story was going to be, it was thrilling to think I could start with, here's why we have electricity and here's what electricity leads to. So thank you for saying that. It's in that weird phase. 
uh, where I've been writing it full out. Then there's all the stuff you have to do to get a book ready for production and distribution. <laughs> so I haven't met readers yet. Like you're one of the first readers I've talked to. So it's like, wow, okay, Jenna got that. <laughs> so people who are watching, you're just getting that weird thing of seeing someone who's been in a room for seven years saying, oh, okay, that worked. That's cool. I was going to ask you how long this book took to write because it's been a minute since you've had yeah. something this scale come yeah. out. And it seems, yeah. I mean, the the wealth of research in this is a bit staggering. I mean, there is so much in so many different avenues. I can only imagine that it took quite a bit of work to get all of that sorted and compiled. Yeah, that's um that's very nice of you to say. Again, the self who is up till two or three in the morning is smiling. Do you know there's an old Western Shane? Do you know that movie Shane? Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you seen it? It's not bad, right? Um, okay. I have probably good. seen it at some point in my life. I, I'm I'm familiar with it. It's a pretty good movie. Like it and High Noon are considered the two great westerns if you like westerns. But I'm not talking I'm not doing an ad for Alan Ladd or for the you know, whatever was crappy about the American frontier. It's just as a film thing. When George Stevens was finished directing it, Paramount was anxious about releasing it. They didn't, they just weren't sure. They thought maybe it was like superhero movies. They thought maybe the market was saturated. And so that left him a whole year to edit the book. And I just really wanted, so I was thinking about that. Uh, my dad loved that movie. I think Westerns wouldn't exist without dads. Yeah, my dad's, <laughs> think, my yeah. dad's favorite is Jeremiah Johnson. I think he's talked about it to me my he's, whole life, um, so. He's got not your dad has pretty interesting taste. John Milius wrote that movie and Cindy Pollack directed it, right? So I knew that movie through my dad, who also showed me Jeremiah Johnson, as it happens. And Stevens had a year to edit it. And if you ever watch it, if you, if anyone ever watches that movie again, like it is beautifully edited. It was just going through and making sure for him, making sure every cut would be fun to look at. And for me, it was just, you know, there was like a year or two. So I I doubled Stevens's time because the runtime on my book is a little longer. But there were just two straight years of editing just to make it work. So thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying asking how much time went into it. And it shows. I mean, this is not a short book. It's It's got some heft to it. But I moved through it quickly because every time I finished one of these like short vignette chapters, I was just like, I need to see how this ties into the next thing. Yeah. Because you really have some stuff that comes out of what feels like left field. But it all ties back to this story that really just builds and sizzles as you go through. Oh, Jenna, wow. I just I really do hope my previous self is hearing what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out to be a story about Edison after all. Right. I thought that was such a cool surprise. There's so many moments of that I had to sort of sit with. And even though I wanted to, like, just plow through, I think this is really a book that does benefit from like a little bit of like retrospection as you go through, because it is layered and all the pieces do sort of come back together. And as I was finishing it, there's even moments where I was like, I can't believe I want to go back and reread things in a climate. (laughs) But I do. Yeah. I thought that we owed the, the issue is really important. It's happening to everybody. And the more people know about, the more they can press for the right things to be done. And so I just thought, what can I do about this? And I thought I can, I know about, I think I know about how to tell stories. And like, let me just tell the story. And then Jenna will read it and she'll be like, man, I want to check this again. I really, (laughs) and now I know how this works. Now I know that these arguments people are using are A, really old and B, from really crazy people. Yeah. But but like Jenna, there was really one of the fun things, if you ever spend seven years uh, writing a book, Mm -hmm. uh, can I do my prepared joke? I have a prepared joke about this. Um, Yes. 
if anyone ever spends, if you spend more than three years on a book, and this is seven years, on three years plus one, you will decide that you're really writing a book about America. <laughs> like, like for all the days up to the end of the third year, you're just writing a book about climate change. But on three years plus one, it's like, no, the book is really about America. And I feel this book is really about America. I think that that puts it in a class that makes a lot more sense than just a climate change book. It's not, it doesn't feel like a science book. It's not necessarily a nature and wildlife book that I think a lot of people would anticipate, especially with the word parrot in the title. I think there might be sort of a misconception of it being a nature and wildlife book or a sort of an ecological history, but it's more of an ethnological history. I think it's a lot more about people and how we play a part in this rather than the science piece. Jenna, I, I feel like we should just run, we should just run dead air in the next 40 <laughs> minutes. That's all. Yeah. So like, that's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't think to say ethnography, but that's brilliant. Yeah. I don't. So I got so excited when you said that. So forgive me for breaking social rules by interrupting, but like, <laughs> you know, now, now I know what to say if people ask what I wrote. It's an ethnography. And, and that is going to be such a big difference, I think, in what people find in this book than, than what they're maybe anticipating. Because the structure is so important. I think sort of the way that you broke up the book into these different pieces with the inventors at the beginning, then you go more into sort of the scientists who have been shouting the world's on fire for a lot longer than I even knew about into the denial piece. How did you come up with that sort of structural piece? Because I think it's so important to how this story plays out. Okay, Jess, I'm giving you long answers because when you said ethnography, the interview ended. So now we're just, we're in overtime. This is all the green room stuff. (laughs) This is all the BTS footage. So I can, I can just relax. The first thing, when you said that it was about that we, it's a lot longer than we knew. Um, that was part of it too, right? There's a bunch of good reasons to read. Like there's important reasons to read about climate, which are, it's a story that's happening to everybody you know every day, and we've watched it happen slowly in the background. But the other reason I think to read, two other reasons to read, A, it just makes your brain better. Like, did you find when you were, I, I know when I'm liking a book that my emails and my text messages get way better. Like, I'm like, hey, that was a pretty funny thing I just wrote my friend about when we're meeting for the movie, right? So, yeah, did you find that while you were reading my 500 pages? Yes, it it, it, it shapes, you know, when you're reading yeah. something good, it translates across to all aspects yeah. of your life. Yeah. When you're like, oh, I'm in something I enjoy and uh, it's it's doing my brain good to, to be exactly, in that Exactly, exactly. So, like, um, so I, that's the reason, one of the key reasons to read, it's like a little bit of a, a brain cleaner outer and a brain vitamin. But then the other thing, I think a lot of people are curious about how to tell stories because everybody, we all use words to communicate. uh, And then one of the really weird things about technology, which no one has talked about is email and texts bring people's prose voices. Like when, if you were growing up in the nineties, you didn't know what your friend's prose voices were like. And Mm -hmm. it's such a weird thing, right? To be like, we all have to know how to tell stories uh, in prose. I teach at NYU and I love teaching and I've been thinking about how narratives work since around 2010. And so that was the other piece about spending the time on this, which is, so again, that was why, for, I, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to ignore the little picture of myself up there. <laughs> There's a little thought balloon of what you're seeing, which I can sort of say, but uh, I suppose I smiled when you were saying like the short chapters and stuff like that. Um, all of those have to do with what I've seen works in the books that I love, right? And the books that I teach are, how do you deal with difficult material, right? And how do you make it work for a reader? 
So when you were discussing how it was organized, I was like, wow. Second thing is, so if you're working on a long project, a really smart thing to do is talk about it with someone who's really smart. So it's important to know smart people, first off, and then to steal ideas from them or just to take notes on yourself when you're talking mm -hmm. to them. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine named Susan Gollum, who is just a really smart person. She's in our business. She's a literary agent. And she asked me what the book was about. And I said, well, it tells three stories. It's about the people who made our world. It's the people who warned about some problems. And then it's about the people who lied about those problems. And then I thought, holy God, that's the way to tell that story. So for people who are working on the story, if they're having trouble thinking about it, just talk about it with someone smart who's patient. So when I heard myself tell the story that way, I thought, great, it's a classic React story. It definitely made it easier to sort of take those breaks and to sit with the information to sort of have it under those umbrellas made it a little bit more digestible and a little bit more of a story of a narrative. I think voice is so key in this because so often people, I think, worry that books like this are going to feel like homework. They're going to feel like a textbook, but this has such a distinct voice. I was laughing when you're saying that like we all develop different prose voices now, because I think a friend of mine and I were just talking about how um, we would know if anyone got kidnapped and was like using someone else's phone because we're so familiar with how each other like text and, um, you know, write in that long form that I think okay. probably wouldn't have existed 20 years ago. But now we all know. But this book has humor. It has, you know, parentheticals that explain and sort of calm down some of the really infuriating moments. Again, I will say I, I got a little legitimately angry reading certain parts of this book because to just imagine that these things have been going on and that we've allowed certain things to happen because we either didn't know better or we didn't want to know better. It really um, pushed my brain to some different thoughts than I'd had before. Jenna, Jenna, where were the places that you got angry? In the third section, sort of comparing it, I, you compare um, a lot of this climate denial to the cigarette industry, and that is a huge piece of this. And yeah. everyone, you know, sort of knows that story in at least a vague understanding. But I had never connected those like rhetorics before my brain had. And as soon as I started to walk down that road, I was immediately like, I can't believe they just keep getting away with it, that they're like doing the same things and they're just yeah. continuing to get away with it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's beautifully said. Yeah. The only, I guess the only protection is that we know about it, that we learn to see that these are the same arguments. Mm -hmm. We're like, Oh no, you're using that thing that they use to kill. I think there's a great scholar in tobacco, a guy named Robert Proctor from Stanford, who puts the number of people killed by cigarettes in the hundreds of millions. So a book he wrote about it uses the word Holocaust. And I think, you know, sometimes if you see that word, you're like, maybe not. But he was judiciously and intelligently and, and persuadingly. So if you can see that people use certain arguments for things like tobacco, if you recognize and you're like, ah, you're running that con. And if it becomes like, oh, yeah, it's, it's sort of like being in one of those um, one of those heist movies. It's like, oh, yeah, you're trying to put someone inside the vault who can then open it up at night. You're doing that thing they did in Ocean's One, but you can't do that to me because now I've seen Ocean's One. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the upside of this, the thing that I made this feel so different than like when you just try and Google things online and end up who knows where on these like really scholarly 
websites and these really scholarly articles I've tried to read in the past to understand better is that you balance so well the pieces that are infuriating with these stories of people who are, you know, trying to do better things and trying to swing the pendulum the other way. And the writing itself, going back to that narrative voice, makes things so much more palatable than just reading like, and here's an, a, a graph of how long we have left before it's all yeah. too late. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy just to get off camera and then you can just talk about the book. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I have very specific literary tastes. Like I love Pauline Kael and Joan Didion and Laurie Moore and I love Sally Rooney. And I just thought, why can't there be a book that would be fun to read in the same way that those books are fun to read? And those books are about incredibly important things. I don't know if you've read a lot of Laurie Moore, but what Laurie, I'm just excited because she has a new book coming mm-hmm. out in a few weeks. And what her books are about are how do you love somebody or how do you love somebody despite what they're like or even despite what we're like? You know what I mean? Which is mm-hmm. one of the great questions that she asks without asking it. So all those and those questions are totally essential. And then a question like, what do we do if the climate goes bad on us? That's also essential. But it's easier to read Laurie Moore. Like she has to work really hard for us to read those great stories and novels. And I just thought, how can I make it interesting in the same way that Laurie Moore is thrilling to me? So I don't know what to say, except thank you for saying that. Like I worked really hard. I read a lot of Laurie Moore. That's the answer. (laughs) And I think that that's always the answer. (laughs) To most problems. Read more Laurie Moore. Or criticism. Oh my God. Yeah. Read Just read more. I think in general, there's countless documentaries on this. There's countless news broadcasts and, you know, specials that have gone out. But there's nothing quite like reading a book to expand your knowledge. I really think the information goes in in a different way. I always find that when I'm able to access a book and really connect with it on any topic, whether it's fiction or non, it it brings the the understanding to a different place. I just think our brains work differently with books. And maybe that's just because I'm a lifelong bookseller, but that's how I feel. Jenna, I thought that was brilliant too. (laughs) I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's (laughs) totally right. That's why I just think that finally I was able to get a little bit more understanding on climate change through this that I didn't ever expect when I started this this journey. Since you're saying all the things that I would say, um, (laughs) let me ask you a question I'm curious about Uh because you were saying you got angry. And one of the hard things for me was there were certain people I hated so much that I had to stop writing the book sometimes because I realized that that was just not, that was making the book grind to a halt because all I was doing was like writing curse words about the people. <laughs> sure. um, who are the people that you really found yourself rooting against? Like I love, for example, Elizabeth Colbert is a brilliant writer on this topic who keeps yeah. finding a way to bring the topic sort of front and center. And I love Jim Hansen. Yeah, uh, I love a guy named David Keeling, who's just really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me who the people were who you disliked the most. Well, I mean, the whole like Fred Singer. Yeah, part, I thought you were going to say. Yeah. I mean, how could you not? It, yeah. That was what I was actually going to say in the next is that like reading that section, I went on such a you take us on such a ride. But obviously, you start in the world of the cigarette danger yeah. denial. Then we've got Reverend Moon shows up. That's when oh, I was like, so good. What yeah. uh, what universe am I in right now? <laughs> it was so great. And then getting into the like Arthur Robin, like, yeah, Arthur Robinson, yeah. Fred Singer, like that piece. I was like, oh, I need to take a little <laughs> break. 
<laughs> yeah. To me, the insane thing, Jenna, is that so a friend of mine, I, I was interested if you were going to name good old S. Fred first. Mm-hmm. Um, but a friend of mine said there needs to be an opera about Fred Singer because every bad thing that's happening in the culture, he ends up being involved in. Yeah. Like, like, he, like he wants to be working with the Republicans in the 70s. Then he gets involved with Reverend Moon. Then he's involved with cigarettes. Then he's in climate denial. Like there's not one terrible thing. There's a great line from Joan Didion. She's talking about uh, a sort of media figure from the 70s. And she said uh, he walked through every American charlatanic thicket, which is just such a great, chunky sentence. Uh, That's like Fred Singer, too. That's his trail map. Like, there's not a single awful thing that was happening that he didn't play his part in. And I was shocked by the moon stuff. I couldn't believe that the main climate deniers, their two brightest lights, were originally working with Reverend Moon to deny that the Moonies were a cult. That was wild. Yeah, that all how those all those pieces interconnected. It, like you can't. That's like one of those like stranger than fiction. Like you can't make that up. You can't like create yeah. a person weirder or like more involved <laughs> in all the worst things. <laughs> <laughs> when people would ask me, you know, what are you working on now, and I would say. I'm reading a huge amount about the Moonies. I'm watching all these Mooney documentaries. And they would say, why are you doing that? I thought you were writing about climate change. I was like, well, just stick around. Yeah, you <laughs> just watch this space because it's 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 all going to make sense yeah. in a little bit. A lo- yeah. And then for a lot of them, that's like one of their, just what you said, it's one of their favorite big surprises. Like, wait, what? This is about a giant cult? And yeah. they, the same people who lied about the climate are lying about this guy who has cultified you know, hundreds of thousands of people. It was wild. That is, that's, was one of the moments I like texted like 14 people. I was like, I know that you maybe aren't going to want to, you, so many people is like, you think you're not going to want to be on board on this book, but it just give it a chance and let it surprise you because I can't get over all the things that are in here. Yeah. So, and if if people are picking up the book now, if you want to skip to the two moon chapters, they are emperor of the universe and who digested the scientists. So I just to save you some time. I do like that in this, you sort of give readers permission in the beginning to read this book out of order, yeah. which I thought was very interesting that like this doesn't need, even though I do think there is benefit to just going straight through and getting that full narrative. You're like, no, it's okay. If you want certain parts of this, I'm going to tell you, you can skip yeah. through. Jenna, when we were talking before the, um, it's not exactly cameras, but before the did, but before the digits started rolling, <laughs> um, we were talking about movies. I love movies. I love Netflix. Binge watching a whole show over uh, mm-hmm. over a weekend. Like I'm loving that show from right now because I was a huge Lost fan. And I love that you can watch things out of order. And I thought, let me write something though. If you read it through in the order, it's a great. I mean, I it's I didn't make the story up, so I feel I can say it's a great story. It is a great story, which is we invent almost magical things. It's like a fairy tale. Then some people say, hey, there might be a problem. And then people show up saying, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. And it turns out they're liars, right? But I really wanted to write something where it could just be like you're seeing three seasons of a show and you can watch any episode you want because that's one of the things that I love to do as a viewer. So thank you. Yeah, Jenna, it turns out you're my ideal reader. We tried. <laughs> was there a lot that ended up on the cutting room floor for this book? Or did you find ways to sort of fit all your best and favorite pieces in? Because it's, I mean, obviously with a story like this, there's more research and more knowledge than could ever fit even in 500 pages. It's such a vast thing. 
But sometimes it was hard to walk across the cutting room floor because there were so many pages and sentences that would grab on your ankles and you had to not look down at them. So yes, the cutting room floor is quite messy. I can imagine. I mean, I think all the pieces, there's no like clunky bit to this. There wasn't any part that felt like, oh, I have to wade through this to get to the next thing. But I can only imagine that in a story this huge and with this many like crazy characters, there's, <laughs> there's got to be pieces that, that unfortunately didn't make it in. But yeah. I, the cast in this is really, I mean, I say cast loosely because obviously they're real people, they're but real. Yeah. it is incredible. And again, that goes back to sort of the human aspect of this book. It put me in such a better position to understand things when I was learning about people rather than just learning about, I don't know, science that I'm never going to be good at understanding because it's just not how my brain works. See, I, I nor mine. I, I'm not sure if human, if our brains work that way. What I just thought is I have to send thank you notes to Janet Malcolm and Curtis Sittenfeld and, uh, and Laurie Moore. Sending one to Janet Malcolm will be a problem for obvious reasons. But yeah, like whenever they tell a story, like um, Janet Malcolm, if you've read her great short books about things like the legal system or about how biographies work, her book about Sylvia Plath is thrilling. It's short and cool, but she always does what, what Jenna is talking about, which is it's just they're people stories and they make you understand concepts that you couldn't understand if it was just here's how journalism functions in the abstract. So, wow. Thank you. Something I really wanted to talk about and to touch on is, and we have through this entire thing, is what sets this book apart from other climate change books? Because there are so many. I mean, if you just go into your you know, local <laughs> bookstore, you go online, uh, you're going to find shelves and shelves and shelves of things about climate change. And how do you wade through and find the thing that speaks to you? And I think in this, like we've said, it's narrative, it's story, it's character. And I think it's going to really open a lot of doors for people in ways that they maybe aren't thinking that they're going to be interested in, or maybe they don't want to read. Because again, I think there is a, a, a hesitancy to get involved in some of these heavier topics because it feels so pressurized and so imminent. But I really encourage people, and I imagine that that will be something that people will find in this book, to allow themselves to expand and allow themselves to learn. Yeah. I was thinking you were saying that like it's happening to people, people, people did it. People found out about it. It's happening to people. So the stories should be about people. It would seem weird to do it another way earlier in the book, because there were so many fights that people used to practice the way they would fight about climate, but there was a fight about ozone. It turned out that the things that we were using to, to put shaving cream on our faces and legs, and the things that we were using to make our bodies smell less bad on the metro, um, that those were eating away our protection from UV light. And I always loved that the guy who discovered that, he drove home, right? Uh, he and his partner were looking at it. There's a man named Sherwood Rowland who ended up winning Nobel Prize with his partner, Mark Molina. He drove home, lives out in Los Angeles, gets on the on-ramp, drives on the highway, gets off the on-ramp, goes by Palms, parks, and he comes home and his wife says, are you okay? Is something bad happening in the lab? Like, you seem a little down. And he said, oh, no, 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 the work is going fine, but it, it just made me in the end of the, of the planet. <laughs> but I just love the idea. It happens. People are doing it. People are saying it. I knew that I began to understand the, I began to understand the story uh, when it was a story and it was about people. A lot of work went into that. That was really fun work. I love being around these people's stories. So thank you. 
I think this is a great, this book is sort of a great um, alternative to the like ever present doom scroll or like doom reading that so many people do now of like going online and just being confronted with bad after bad after bad with like really little to no context about how it fits into a, a larger mm. picture. But this, yes, it, it does incorporate some of those elements of things that we see that are really terrifying to us. But there's also hope in this book. There's human persistence and ingenuity. There is resiliency, all those things that I think balance out when something terrible is going to happen or when we feel something terrible is going to happen. That reminder that humans, we might make the problems, but sometimes we try to solve them too. Uh, and so I want to thank Jenna for having written The Power in the Igloo. And, uh, and so we'll you know, uh, join, join us again for another episode of Poured Over. I'll be your host. Like, <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> well, I might have done my research too well for this one. <laughs> Thank you for writing such an entertaining and thrilling and uh, an informative book. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh my gosh, that's too much. It's true though. I mean, I think we get so used to inhabiting our own spaces and we forget that even though like we are so globally connected in ways that we've never been before and we have access to each other's stories in ways that we never have before we do still end up living so much in our comfort bubbles and in our, you know, in the safe spaces that we create. And, you know, this book is designed to take you out of that in many ways because it is about such a challenging topic, but it allows for understanding in ways that many other books on the topic, I haven't found anything else that feels like quite the same way. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, Jenna, I just wanted to write something for readers like us pretty much. I wanted someone to be able to be, I keep mentioning Laurie Moore and Curtis Hittenfeld, they're two of my favorite writers. So if any of my students are watching, they're like, oh, he's talking about Curtis Hittenfeld <laughs> again. Um, but I just wanted, I wanted to be able, like you could finish Romantic Comedy, which is her new novel, or you could put down prep if you're rereading it, as you should be rereading it right now, because it's a great book. Or you could put down Birds of America or uh, Like Life. Those are two great uh, Laurie Moore collections. And you could pick this up, and I hoped it would be sort of seamless. It would just be like, this is the way we approach our lives. And a story about one of the most huge factors in our lives should be in the voice that we learn the other stories in. And that would help us to understand what the politics are, what the facts of it are, and then what some of the solutions might be. So uh, thank you again. I mean, again, this book changed my perspective on this topic, which I think is like the most you can ever hope from anything that you read or anything you encounter is like, did I walk away from this different than when I started? And I can absolutely say that that's true. How do you feel like you've changed since you've written this book? Well, for one thing, I <laughs> I became very argumentative, which I have to, I, I'd like to warn readers that won't happen to you from what I've seen of the people I've worked with who've read it. There's a lot of lying in the last third of the book. Because the story, the, so the, the the stories that the book tells that Jenna and I were talking about are first section is inventors. Here's who made the world that we're in. Second section is scientists, these heroic people who are like, hey, there might be a problem. And everyone's like, no, it's like, no, seriously, there might be a problem. And then the last section are people who are paid to lie about the problem. And it's good short term, like they're making money and then bad even for them long term, right? So for me, writing about them, 
made me want to argue more. Like when people would say things that weren't true, I'd be like, oh no, it's just like Fred Sanger saying something that's not true. Or it's like Frederick Seitz saying something that's not true. I better correct that. So it made me unpleasant to be around for a certain amount of time. And I was so happy. Another thing, then there were, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I had to read some other people, more recent liars on these topics. And if you read somebody, their brain voice gets in your head. And so I read everything that uh, a guy named James Dellingpole wrote. He's a British denier. And God, no one wanted to be around me then. I think it must be hard for James Dellingpole to be James Dellingpole because it was like, you know, in cartoons when like there are skunk lines coming off somebody, I had the emotional equivalent of that. So um, that was one of the ways it changed me. It made me more lonely. I'm teasing, but like my friends had to, my friends had to be very accommodating. How has it changed me now? I think that if we were able to, there were so many forces against people accepting, I hate to use a phrase like accepting the science, but there were so many forces against people understanding that we have irrevocably changed the climate and we're going to need some sort of solution. And if we could get everyone, even conservatives, right, even people who have a huge stake, if we can get them admitting it, I think we can also solve the problem. So weirdly, telling the story may be incredibly optimistic because we were able, it took 70 years, 60 years, we were able to say it might happen and then it is happening. So I actually became way more optimistic than I was before. And I think also, Jenna, just because I understood the topic now before, it was like a weird thing that was happening, but I felt like I couldn't devote the time to understanding. And I would just hear like little bits of it. And then it's like, oh, okay, this is something we've faced other problems. These people fought this. And um, I feel that once once I know it, it's like, okay, that's something that we can tackle as a, as a group. Absolutely. I think that that all comes across very well. I mean, definitely I, when I was reading it and having my moments of anger, I was having to reach out to people and say, look, I know you're, you're not going to get this quite yet, but let me talk to you about why I'm upset today. But I did <laughs> feel ultimately hopeful at the end. You can't help but to feel yeah. hopeful. I think that's also a human thing is that undying hope of fixing things even when it seems bad but i was thinking since obviously we've talked so much about movies and you've had one of your books in the past adapted into a film do you think there's a a film in the parrot in the igloo do you think we could create some of these characters on the big screen i kept thinking it's like the godfather it's a giant story and uh so yeah, well, t- tell me what you think, Jenna. Do you think it's a movie? I would absolutely yeah. watch it as a as a movie, as a one of the you know pr- the prestige limited series. I think we could absolutely get <laughs> yeah. get this on a screen because it it is truly cinematic. the 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 layers and the levels and these larger than life people. It you can't help but think of it cinematically. That's so great. Let me say that Jenna and I were talking about movies before we started, and we have similar movies. <laughs> so I think we're imagining the same kind of thing. Yes. That's great. Yeah, I um, you know, scripted scripted drama and comedy is one of the ways we communicate with each other as a culture. So that makes me happy. Just like it's a story, it happened to us, and if we understand it as a story, then we know how to maybe go about solving it. So Absolutely. that's fun. Yeah. We've talked about this a little bit already too, but one of my favorite questions to sort of end things on is. Who are you as a reader? Who Who is David Lipsky when he is reading for work, for not work, all those different things? I really am always interested as to who, like us, is most comfortable. Or if they go to someone's house during the shyness that I think we all experience, do they go and head to the bookcase? Because 
a bookcase is like going through someone's photo album. It's a much more intimate photo album. It's like, ah, this is who this person is. So if you were to look at mine, I mean, there are some books behind me here. Um, As a reader, I'd love if I read someone like Curtis Sittenfeld, uh, who helps me understand why I feel the way I feel. Like, it's such a fascinating thing. There was a great quote that I remember reading in an old old article about book reading, because it's something that's always been a little threatened. Book reading has felt threatened for centuries. One of the funny things about researching Edison is that when Edison invented the phonograph, the New York Times probably ran the first of their is reading guide, dying articles. It's like 1875, and you're like, wait, people are going to stop reading because there's going to be a phonograph. There's going to be there's going to be LPs in everyone's house. But Don DeLillo said this great thing. He said that if people stop reading, what we think of as a human personality, a human character will go away. And I thought that was great because if I haven't read for a while, I don't understand my life in a funny way. I mean, my life is happening, but it's more like there's no recording. It's more like if we were having this conversation, but you hadn't hit record on the Zoom. So one of the reasons that I read is just so that my thoughts can become more athletic or more pointed in a way. And then I read to understand stuff. Generally, I read um, I read stuff that's funny. So I read Curtis Sittenfeld and Laurie Moore, all the names I've been saying. And also a woman named Pauline Kell, who is a brilliant critic. The book and movie that you were talking about before was about the writer David Wallace. And this is just my plug for Pauline Kael. He said that Pauline Kael's nonfiction voice had never been equaled. And then two movie plugs about Pauline Kael, Wes Anderson and, and Quentin Tarantino. They seem very opposite as filmmakers, right? Mm-hmm. But when they both were asked how they learned how to be directors, they both said they learned how to become directors by reading Pauline Kael. So just doing an ad for someone who people should be talking about more. I'm a reader who likes to have their brain reawakened. And when I'm reading something that I love, I feel better and I feel more like myself. And I wanted to write a book on climate that might that maybe could have that effect on readers too. What kind of reader are you, Jenna? Same sort of stuff? I, yes, I am a reader who always wants everything to make my brain explode. I want that, that voice. I want that narrative feel. Um, I think I always talk about Louise Erdrich as my sort of my sort of go to that like poetic prose that sets up everything and that sort of leads you down a whole path that maybe you never thought you'd be on. And I think that that sort of goes back to voice. I think it all comes back to who is telling you that story and do you feel like you're going to trust them to take you where you want to go? I love what you said. Like the quote goes back to who is telling you that story. That's great. Just out of curiosity, have you ever tried Alice Munro? Um, she has some of an and Pat, the same quality yeah. in a way of her. Yeah. yeah. Anything that allows you to walk away feeling a little bit different than when you fir- than when you opened that first page is really what I'm yeah. always looking for. And I, I feel that with the parrot in the igloo. I definitely know I'm not the exact same. I don't think the same as when I started that book. hundred percent. I just love that someone who would love Louise Erdrich the way I do would also be saying that they responded to this book. What a thing. Yes. (laughs) David Lipsky, thank you so much for being with us here today on Poured Over. The Parrot and the Igloo is out now, and I can't wait for readers to get their hands on it because I truly think it's going to change the way that they see this entire topic. So thank you so much. Uh, Jenna, thanks for having me. It was great. And and, and thanks for giving better answers than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.